Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spirited and spiritual community worshiping remotely, dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. I welcome all of you who are here from your living rooms and kitchens, from your bedrooms, from places far away from here. I'm glad that you have found this place. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And so one of the things we do when we are together and when we're apart is greet one another. The comments, if you can find them, maybe if you're on a tablet, you can't see comments, but that would be the place to greet one another at this time. It's the tradition of Unitarian Universalist churches to light a chalice at the beginning of each service. Join me now as we say the words with which we light our chalice today. We light this chalice so that its flame may signify the spiritual strands of light that bind our hearts and souls with one another. Even while we must be physically apart, we bask in its warmth together. Chris Jimerson, Minister for Program Development with First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. Our call to worship today is by Sophia Lyon Faz. She was a white religious education specialist, advocate, and scholar. She was credited with leading a revolution in religious education within Unitarianism in the 1930s and 40s, as well as leading a Unitarian Renaissance more broadly. In 1959, at age 83, she was ordained into the Unitarian ministry in recognition of her accomplishments and leadership regarding faith development. Her thinking and methods still influence our religious education programs today. I will read the entire piece, which is titled, We Gather in Reverence, and I invite you to join in reading with me for the sections of it that are in italics. We gather in reverence before the wonder of life, the wonder of this moment, the wonder of being together, so close yet so apart, each hidden in our own secret chamber, each listening, each trying to speak, yet none fully understanding, none fully understood. We gather in reverence before all intangible things that eyes see not, nor ears can detect, that hands can never touch, that space cannot hold, 
and time cannot measure. This congregation has a mission. We wrote it on the wall and we say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. One of the ways that we build beloved community is by having a moment for beloved community every time after we say our affirmation. This morning's is a story from a man who was a school superintendent in Spartanburg, South Carolina, where I lived for many years. He writes about being with his family, his two grown sons, one of whom is wearing a Navy t-shirt and one of whom is a high school student. And they run into, while walking their land, their own land that's been in their family for years, they're walking in the woods by a river. They come face to face with two white men. And they realize that the white men are bearing rifles. So this black family encounters these white men trespassing on their land. What happens? Well, instantly, the black body, which is trained to be wary of the white body, which is unpredictable, entitled, and dangerous, especially when armed, begins a soothing, soothing conversation. And he says, I thought maybe my son's t-shirt from the Naval Academy will soothe them and reassure them. And then he thought, wait a minute, why am I reassuring them? They're on my land. I should be confronting them. But he says, that's not my life. That's not the life of a black man in today's America. And so they make friendly conversation until finally comes the time when they can say, so, y'all, what are you doing on this land? This is our land. And the white men, tables turned, suddenly have to say, well, we, we just come check on this every now and then for uh, your neighbor who owns this land. But he knows the neighbor who owns the land, and that's not a true story. What are they going to do? Nothing. What can they do? And this is his life. He says, I don't, I don't feel safe jogging in my neighborhood after dark. I worry for my sons. I watch the tape of Ahmad Arbery being shot by white men in a pickup truck that looked just like the white men that we met in our woods. This is not right. This is not 
the right way for a culture and a society to be. And yet, that's the way it is. And those of us who identify as white have the privilege of not really feeling that in our bones, like those among us who are people of color do. Good morning. As you can see, I've got a big stone wall behind me, making me think of Humpty Dumpty, the famous egg. If you haven't ever heard his poem, it goes like this. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Have you ever felt like that? Like you were so broken that you couldn't be put back together? The author of the story we're going to read this morning wondered what would have happened to Humpty if he had been put back together? What would that have felt like? What would his life have been like after that? After the Fall by Dan Santat How Humpty Dumpty Got Back Up Again My name is Humpty Dumpty. This was my favorite spot, high up on the wall. I know it's an odd place for an egg to be, but I loved being close to the birds. Then one day, I fell. I'm sort of famous for that part. Folks called it the Great Fall, which sounds a little grand. It was just an accident, but it changed my life. Fortunately, all the king's men managed to put me back together. Well, most of me. There were some parts that couldn't be healed with bandages and glue. After that day, I became afraid of heights. I was so scared that it kept me from enjoying some of my favorite things. I walked past the wall every day, and I would think about climbing that ladder again. I really missed the birds and being high above the city. But I could never do it, because I knew that accidents can happen. I eventually settled for watching the birds from the ground. It wasn't the same, but it was better than nothing. Then one day, an idea flew by. Making planes was harder than I thought. It was easy to get cuts and scratches, but day after day, I kept trying and trying until I got it just right. My plane was perfect, and it flew like nothing could stop it. I hadn't felt that happy in a long time. It wasn't the same as being up in the sky with the birds, but it was close enough. Unfortunately, accidents happen. They always do. I almost walked away again, but then I thought about all the time I'd spent working on my plane and all the other things I'd missed. I decided I was going to climb that wall. But the higher I got, the more nervous I felt. I didn't want to admit it. I was terrified. I didn't look up. I didn't look down. I just kept climbing, one step at a time, until I was no longer afraid. Maybe now you won't think of me as that egg who was famous for falling. Hopefully you'll remember me as the egg who got back up. and learned how to fly. Reverend Fred Rogers says, anything that's human is mentionable and anything that is mentionable can be more manageable. 
When we talk about our feelings, they become less overwhelming, less upsetting, and less scary. The people we trust with that important talk can help us know we are not alone. We have now come to the part of our service where we breathe together in an attitude of meditation and prayer as much as we are able to do so in our homes this morning or whenever you're watching this. We breathe together because it is in that quiet place that we are taught clarity comes, where we can settle our bodies, where we can send energy and prayer to those among us who are ill or suffering sick or traumatized almost everybody needs prayer right about now so whatever way that you do that let us do that now It's important for us as compassionate people, compassionate towards ourselves and towards others, to be informed and have an understanding about trauma and its effect on people. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody had a reaction to that situation, to something that was said or done that was so unexpected, so over the top, such a freak out? That you were taken aback, surprised, that you were almost mm, judgmental about it. Like, what is the matter with you? Why are you responding in all out of proportion to this? Why are you scared about this? Why are you angry about this? What is going on with you? Sometimes the person is just being unreasonable. But a lot of times, what we've just seen is a trauma response. Trauma changes the chemistry of your body and your brain. It records a wordless story in your body about whether you are safe or not. And your body reacts when you feel unsafe. You all have heard the old fight or flight. Sometimes you want to fight or you want to flee. But sometimes events happen to you that are too big, too fast, too much, and you can't fight. 
and you can't flee. So you're stuck. You just get stuck in this traumatic situation and your body is responding. Sometimes people in these situations feel like they are leaving their body. And sometimes they don't get all the way back. There's a phrase in the body therapy community called soul wound. I think it came from the Native American experience. Soul wounds are a wound that, ke- that stays in your body. There's a book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk about how trauma chemistry records what happened to you, either a one-time trauma or a cumulative uh, accumulation of traumas. And there's also even something that they call a hazy trauma, which is just living with a person who is violent, unpredictable, narcissistic. Uh, I think many of us are feeling hazy trauma right now in these days. The research on trauma being recorded in the body is fairly recent. And what they've also found, this was about five years ago, they began to find that trauma is inherited. That trauma can change your very DNA and you can pass that trauma and the trauma response on to your generations that come after you. They did a, an experiment with, with mice in a lab where they, um, they let the mice smell the smell of cherries and then they got a little mild shock. And it came to be very quickly that just the smell of cherries would make the mice tense and upset. And then those mice had babies. And all the babies had to do was smell the cherry, and they got tense and upset. And then the babies, babies reacted the same way to that smell. Trauma is powerful. And trauma is not in your mind and spirit only. Trauma is in the body. And because it's in the body, changing your thoughts isn't completely effective in helping your body heal. I know that uh, uh, in my work as a therapist, I met many, many people who had childhood trauma and who had ongoing trauma in their adult lives, and they would sometimes self-medicate with uh, prescription drugs or with substance abuse, or they would self-medicate with rages that would make them feel cleansed for a moment and take the pain away or they would oddly enough what happens to some people is they they have damage to their sense of self-preservation so they put themselves in more dangerous situations than a non-traumatized person might it's not their fault trauma is not uh, a fault of any kind it's a very reasonable response from your body to a situation that was unreasonable in itself. Your body responds in a way that probably protected you or helped you survive during the time of the trauma, and it's just gotten stuck in there. And so even when it doesn't help you survive, even when it does you damage, you still respond in that way. I'm reading a wonderful book called my grandmother's hands and it's by a man named Resma Menachem 
And here's one of the things he says. Trauma is not a flaw or a weakness. It is a highly effective tool of safety and survival. Trauma is also not an event. Trauma is the body's protective response to an event or series of events that it perceives as potentially dangerous. And this perception might be accurate, inaccurate, or entirely imaginary. In the aftermath of highly stressful situations, our whole body, he calls it our soul nerve, the vagus nerve, and our lizard brain may embed a reflexive trauma response in our bodies. And this happens at lightning speed. So asking somebody to be reasonable is not helpful. This is a non-rational, instantaneous body response to a feeling of being unsafe. Rezma Menachem is an African-American body-centered therapist and licensed social worker and author. His book is the most clear, compassionate, and inclusive work I have ever read on this issue. He talks about how we carry historical trauma in our bodies, that black bodies carry the historical trauma of slavery and the violence that has continued since slavery was abolished. He talks about Ahmad Arbery, say his name, who was hunted and shot by two white men in a pickup truck with their friend proudly recording the whole situation. And such was the culture of Brunswick, Georgia, that for over two months after this event, the two white men who murdered this man, who lynched this man, walked free until the proud recording of the incident of the lynching of the murder was released. And now they've been arrested. We'll see what happens because we don't know right now. White bodies have a long history of being allowed to enforce the rules on black bodies. Those two white men on the school superintendent's family's land, they felt completely at ease walking on someone else's land and even challenging with their rifles up somebody who was taking a walk in the woods. White bodies have fear of black bodies because black bodies have been portrayed as criminal, as dangerous, as threatening. Even some medical studies show as being impervious to pain. And I think white bodies also carry the trauma of having uh, benefited from a culture that so fully bears down upon black, brown, and native bodies because the person who is the jailer is always afraid of the people they have jailed. Women's bodies carry fear from being attacked, from being 
told constantly that we're going to be attacked, that we need to be careful, that we shouldn't dress like this, we shouldn't act like that. Uh, women's bodies carry trauma from having watched show after show after show on TV, where the beginning of the show is some beautiful uh, woman being killed so her heroic husband can go lay waste about him with the bad guys. Also, women have been traumatized by having to imagine many interactions with men at work, in the bar, in a restaurant, in the coffee shop, as threatening. If a man approaches you, if you're a young woman, you have to smile just exactly right, not to encourage him, but also not to make him mad. And if he asks you out, you have to say no exactly right so as not to uh, make him mad because he could turn violent at any minute. You don't know. There are many, many. Most men are wonderful. But every now and then, you just can't tell. And I think that's how it is with, with all of us. As one black man wrote, Dealing with white people is like putting your hand in a bag of snakes. Most of the snakes are going to be fine, but every now and then one will bite you. Trauma in your body can make you respond with rage to something seemingly inconsequential. Inconsequential, You might feel threatened by something that wouldn't even scare a four-year-old. Or you might feel just simply taken apart by a commercial on the television. It's a reasonable response to something that was an unreasonable situation. And sometimes carrying trauma in your body can make your thinking rigid and it can make your body weaker and it can make your spirit stunted. You don't have room to grow in there. And some people deal with the pain by just blowing it through other people with verbal abuse or physical violence and other people just shut down completely and become dissociated they're scarily calm I'm sure you've seen someone do that if not yourself or they might erupt into a flood of self-hate and self-harm people process the pain so many different ways my colleague Joanna Fontaine Crawford who is at Live Oak Church up north describes it as carrying a piece of glass in your body. Now, if somebody accidentally or on purpose hits that place in your body, you're going to scream because you have a piece of glass right there. And the person who hit you is going to say, why are you screaming? There's this just your shoulder, but their piece of glass may be somewhere else. And if you hit that place by accident, they would certainly yelp as well. So we need to be very gentle right now with ourselves and with each other. We need to be very forgiving right now with ourselves and each other. This pandemic situation is traumatic and it's also kicking all the pieces of glass that most of us have in our bodies from one place or another. And we might be just snappy with each other or we might cry five times a day or we might just be a little more reactive than normal. And so... Take a deep breath. I am not going to tell you to calm down. Because there are so many things right now to be mad about and to be scared about. So do not calm down. But also ground your bodies and make friends with your body. Be aware of what it is feeling and where in your body 
you're feeling it. Your bodies are having a hard time right now too. We are carrying ourselves in a very constricted way. And so we need to make time for the the singing, the drumming, the rocking, the conversation, the humming, the dance, the art, the exercise, the food, the quiet, and the celebrations that can bring us home to our bodies and help them heal. This congregation is supported by the generous pledges of our members and friends. We also pass the plate every Sunday, sometimes twice on the second Sunday of the month. But we pass the plate remotely right now. There is a link either right above or right below your uh, video, or it's in the comments if you are a person who is seeing the comments. Please visit it either now or at some point soon and make a donation to this congregation. We are holding strong. Our members are generous and faithful. And this is a congregation worth being a part of. Join me now as we say the words with which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Our benediction is a call and response song. I will sing a line and you echo it back to me. It is a way to be gentle with ourselves and one another. The first time we sing it, it's for ourselves. You may be, you may be one last spark, one last spark. We all need, we all need to light the whole world, to light the whole world. Good. Now, you have another chance to sing along. This time through, we're going to sing it for someone we love. So get them in your mind. You may be, you may be one last spark, one last spark. We all need, we all need to light the whole world, to light the whole world. Now, we sing it for someone against whom we have a resentment because it's good for our spirits. It helps us not carry poison in our hands. We can still stand up against injustice, but to hate someone doesn't hurt them. It just hurts us. So pick out someone against whom you have a resentment. And let's go. Final exam of the You May Be One Last Spark song. <sighs> you may be, you may be one last spark, one last spark. We all need, we all need to light the whole world, to light the whole world.
I might need to sing it for myself again right now. How about you? Singing it for Lindsey Graham was hard. You may be, you may be one last spark, one last spark. We all need, we all need to light the whole world. Maybe so. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.